Let us pray. Heavenly Father, endue our hearts with the great hope which you promise in your word, that we may be bound together through Christ our Lord, that in all we do we would sing your praise with one voice. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the 1940s, there is a young man who is rising in his theological prowess in Germany. He even came to America, where he gained a great reputation for his wisdom and knowledge and love of Scripture. But as he saw what was going on in Germany, he felt uneasy staying away from his people and knew that the Christians needed leaders who were intelligent, bold, and brave, who were willing to preach the gospel, who were willing to stand up with the evil that was rising in his home, home country. This theologian was the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He returned home from studying at a prominent seminary in America and started his own underground seminary where he taught Lutheran leaders what it looked like to live a Christian life in a dark, dark world. He wrote two books. The first is called Cost of Discipleship, which, was, which he, one of the things he railed against in there was what he called cheap grace. Against a grace that said it's okay to live an unexamined and unchanged life. Because once you realize and understand the full depth and breadth of what Christ has done for you, how can you walk away from that unchanged? He challenged them to live as disciples of Christ in a world that was dark. His second book was Life Together. And in that book, he described what it looked like to live as a Christian community. The section of it that I always bring up, and it makes Elizabeth ever so uncomfortable, is his exhortation to sing in unison. For some reason, Bonhoeffer did not like harmonies. But part of the reason that he didn't like harmonies, and part of the reason that I brought it up wasn't just to make Elizabeth laugh and smile, is because in singing in unison, he saw the unity of the body of Christ. In that, he saw Christ's body praising God together. We don't have to, of course, adopt that understanding that he had there, but we do have to understand that we are called to be united. We are called to be one body, to praise our Lord together in unison. A part of our philosophy of ministry here that we come back to again and again in our vestry meetings, is that idea that we are called to be united. When we see our parking lot full and we wonder how can we address that issue, we come back to that idea that it is good, even if it's crowded and a little uncomfortable, to worship on Sunday together, to be one body on Sunday, to fellowship together, to enjoy each other's company, to enjoy each other's Enjoy each other's voices 
and to encourage one another in running the race that is set before us. The crux of what we read this morning from St. Paul's letter to the Romans pushes us back to that unity. Now, before we dig too deep into the passage itself, I know I've talked about this a bit before. We have to go back and remember the problem that St. Paul is addressing in the Roman church. In the early church, and in fact in the church of Rome, there were, there were several issues that arose, but one of which was the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians couldn't quite seem to get along. One group would say, I'm better than the other group. The Jews would often say that I'm better because I'm circumcised, and the Gentiles would go and get circumcised, and everybody said, no, don't do that. But this disunity troubled Paul, and he wrote this entire book to push us back to the gospel truth that you and I are in desperate need of Christ, that you and I, regardless of where we come from, are unified, both in that need for Christ and in what he has done for us. So this passage, which we read this morning, can be applied in several ways. First, there's that direct implication, the implication against racism. Regardless of where we came from, we are united in Christ. And therefore, it does not matter, as Paul points out, whether we are Jew or Gentile. It does not matter if we are black or white or any other ethnicity. We are united in Christ. And we also need Christ equally. But then there's an, implied, there's an implied application as well. And against partisism. Part, I can't pronounce things this morning, apparently. <laughs> against partisan behavior. That is, we are not to be divided on unessential things. We can believe different things about politics. We can believe different things about what color our carpets are in our churches. We can believe different things on that front. But don't confuse this with an insistency upon orthodoxy. We cannot be divided on who Christ is. We cannot be divided on the central tenets of the creed which we recite every Sunday. We must agree on those, but we can disagree on what color the carpets are or what color we paint the sanctuary. Not that we're doing either of those, but strangely enough, those are often arguments which are more embroiled than they ought to be. But this also reminds us that when we do disagree on the non-essentials and we talk, it can bring us closer. It's not a bad thing to disagree, but disagreements allow us to have conversation, to bring unity even deeper if we're willing to have those conversations and not get embroiled in anger. And so ultimately, this passage and the book of Romans pushes us into a call for unity among believers. This call to unity comes from that very hope which we have in Christ. This call to unity encourages us towards two points of hope which he brings up this morning. Hope through endurance and hope through the encouragement of Scripture. First, let's talk about hope through endurance. 
Hope through endurance brings us that we might be united in that worship. If we're too busy clamoring against each other, then how can we be united in worship? How can we have hope in the difficulties of this world? But rather, let us be united that we may encourage each other to endure, persevering in the face of difficulty. I thought of two ways in which we can struggle, in which we need endurance. There will be those struggles in the church, like we mentioned. For the church is not meant to be a country club. To steal that wonderful and somewhat cliche saying, the church is not a country club for saints, but a hospital for sinners. The church is a place where you and I come to grow closer to Christ, to find the cure for our soul where Christ can tend to us and encourage us. But because each of us are sinners, we're going to do things that hurt one another from time to time. There's one thing, one of those things where people say the reasons they don't come to church, and I'm desperate for somebody to say this to me, and they're yet to where they say, well, I don't want to go to church because they're full of hypocrites. And I really want somebody to say that to me so I can respond with, well, yes, but we definitely have room for one more. <laughs> we are broken and sinful people who are, who are working out our salvation in pure fear and trembling by the grace of God. And so that means that sometimes we will misstep. Sometimes we will say to people things that are hurtful. And so it can be a struggle to be in the Christian community. But like I noted, when we struggle, when we endure through that, we often draw closer to one another. When we say brother or sister, when you made that offhanded joke, it hurt. And when you respond not with defensiveness, but with humility, you can learn, we can each learn in grace. We can learn to draw closer, not only to one another, but to Christ himself, who is our redeemer, who redeems hypocrites like me and you. Often immature Christians are shocked when they see painful things done by Christians. <clears throat> But yet, we must remember that our hope does not come from one another. Our hope is from Christ alone. Our hope is from Christ alone who invites us in to that healing. Our, a hope that invites us into endurance, regardless of what happens in the world around us. And this brings in an invitation. If you are not fully in Christ, if you are hurting or struggling this morning, remember that, that the only one that can bring true hope is Christ, who can heal that pain which you feel, who can help you learn what it means to walk in his grace and mercy. And then there's the second way that we hope through. Hope through the encouragement of Scripture. And here St. Paul spends a fair amount of time unpacking why Scripture is worthy of placing our hope in, worthy of studying so that we mark, as our, script, as our colleague said this morning, 
mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. First and foremost, Scripture tells us that Christ is the servant to the circumcised. He fulfills the law in completeness. The law which Paul spent the beginning half of this book unpacking and showing how you and I have failed to live up to that law. And yet he did not. He fulfilled it perfectly. It also reminds us that Christ came to serve and not to be served. And reminds us to learn that same heart which he had. The heart of a servant. Next, our Advent hope is that Christ came to fulfill that which, he's came, which was said about him before him. <clears throat> Christ came to fulfill that, that we might see how God's word does not return void. Scripture tells us this again and again, that God may say something, and he will do it. Christ was promised beforehand. And we read so much, so much prophecy through the season of Advent that points again and again to Christ. And we learn that God's word does not return void. That God's word can be trusted. That it is a promise for you and for I. The word, therefore, is central in forming us. That prayer of the Advent 2 prayer is famous even outside of the Anglican Church as a prayer that reminds us that the scriptures are to be our food, our hope, our formation, that we would know who God is and who we are in Christ. And so, as it says, we mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that they form us, feed us, and grow us. And the word is central in our worship. For the Anglicans, we, are a two per, we have two things that we focus on in our worship. We focus on the word, and we focus on sacraments. One is not raised up above the other, but both form and encourage and draw us closer and closer to Christ. So we start with the word, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago. The word feeds us, and then we go to the table where the Lord feeds us in his mystery, in the mystery of the Holy Communion. <clears throat> Next, we are reminded that Christ is the promise to the patriarch. Each and every one of us, I suspect, have had promises that were broken. And know, even if it's a small one, that it can be a little distressing and hurtful. Or perhaps you remember the promises you've broken. But the word, as we've learned, is not a broken promise. Rather, Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. Even though it took centuries and even a millennium to fulfill Christ fulfilled the promise made. <clears throat> the promised offspring that Abraham would have more offsprings than all the stars in the sky and all the sand on the shore. For after Christ, how many 
have come to worship God. Billions, I think, would be accurate. Christ is the blessing to the world that is promised to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3 and elsewhere throughout Genesis, Abraham is promised again and again that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. And how has the church blessed the world because of Christ? As she goes out into the world, not only to make Christ known, but to care for the sick and the dying and the hurting, to care for those who desperately need the good news of Christ. Surely, all the earth has been blessed. <clears throat> to show this finally, St. Paul brings in four verses from the Old Testament. Psalm eighteen forty nine. he reads, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Then he goes back to Deuteronomy 42, 43, which says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In Psalm 117, 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol his name. And finally, Isaiah eleven ten, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. God's word does not return void. And so we have hope. We have hope through endurance that we may be united in worship and hope through encouragement by the word of God that we may be united in worship. And through this hope, we praise God with one voice and pray that God may fill, may, the God of hope may fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is what we look for in Advent, is it not? We look back and we look forward to the hope that Christ came into the world, that Christ died for our sins, that Christ rose and ascended, and most importantly, that Christ will come again. The scripture ends with three Christian virtues, hope, joy, and peace. Hope gives us the confidence to look forward that that which God has promised will happen. Christ will come again. Joy is a glad heart in a world that is chaotic and sometimes scary. A heart that is at peace. For we know the end of the story. We know what our joy stems from. That Christ came into the world and Christ will come again. And peace, peace, a state of concord, recognizing that though there is that turmoil in the world, that if we rest in Christ, there is nothing that can shake us. Beloved, will you be united in, with us in Christ? Will you be united in having hope joy and peace, no matter what the world brings. Will you be united because you know what Christ has done and what Christ will do? Will you sing with us in one voice? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.